May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. As Matthew relates the story, this is the fourth time that members of the Jerusalem establishment have attempted to discredit Jesus with their questions. He's only been in Jerusalem a very few days, but he's made his mark. Riding into the city to the sound of those cries of Hosanna, very publicly denouncing the money changers at the temple and chasing out the animals, and appearing openly in the public square as an increasingly popular teacher. With the Roman soldiers looking on with increasing suspicion at this maverick Galilean teacher and his following, the time has come to deal with him. Yet each time one of these scholars, one of these leaders of the establishment, attempts to back him into a rhetorical corner, Jesus rather deftly sidesteps the trap and then turns it back on his questioner. Now, you needn't think he's being merely evasive, unwilling to show his hand and declare himself for who he is. No, he's actually engaging his questioners on their terms, skillfully employing the accepted way of religious discourse. He's evidently very good at it, for as today's reading comes to its close, Matthew comments that no one was able to give Jesus an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He's good at the debating rhetoric. The question that the lawyer asks And here we should think of the lawyer as being not a legal professional in our modern sense, but a biblical scholar, a theologian of the law. The question that theologian of the law asks is, Teacher, which commandment of the law is the greatest? The answer Jesus gives is frankly so traditional that not a one of them could have been much troubled by it. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's actually quoting the Shema of Israel from Deuteronomy 6.5, a verse that was meant to be not simply recited but prayed daily by devout Jews, still is. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus adds, And then, citing a passage from Leviticus, so again quoting scripture, he continues, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and all of the prophets, the whole of the Torah, in other words, and everything spoken by the prophets must be understood in light of these two essential things, love of God And love of neighbor, love of neighbor as you love yourself. You don't get a whole lot more traditional than that in Judaism. Not only is Jesus quoting scripture to them, but he's actually placing himself in line with a much respected rabbinical reading of the Torah. There is nothing here that's going to get him into trouble. 
It's helpful for us to consider what Jesus might have meant when he spoke of love of God and love of neighbor. For English speakers, the word love almost inevitably implies something about our emotions and our affections. Whether we're speaking about how much we love our romantic partner or our children or coffee, chocolate, the mountains, winter vacations, a particular movie or book or piece of music, the word love always suggests some sort of emotional response or attachment. I just love that. So what if I don't feel much like loving my neighbor? What if my neighbor isn't very lovable? What does it mean to feel love toward God? I mean, there are certainly times when I am powerfully moved in worship, emotionally moved in prayer, but as a steady way of being day in, day out with all that I am, I, my emotions couldn't sustain that. Well, here the comments of Clayton Schmidt are helpful. Noting that the Greek word translated here as love is agape, Schmidt notes that, quote, chiefly it refers to what can be called loving kindness. It's not a passive emotion, but active mercy. It's marked by patience and generosity, both acts being generated by the one who loves. In short, loving is a choice, not a feeling. A choice. To which I might add that it's a choice that can, in its own turn, generate emotions or experiences of patience and generosity and warmth and kindness in the one who is choosing to do the loving and the giving. Paul actually expresses this in the passage we heard read from 1 Thessalonians when he writes, quote, we were gentle among you. Now he's writing to this young church community that he's planted. We, we were gentle among you, like a nurse tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, that's what had taken him to Thessalonica in the first place, we're determined to share not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Perhaps to his own surprise, Paul, the apostle, the great evangelist and preacher, has discovered that by choosing to care about that little church community, he's found himself wanting to share his very self with them. And the image he uses is like a woman nursing her own child at her breast, that kind of self-giving. In other words, the mandate Jesus issues to love God and love neighbor is a mandate to choose that way of being in the world. Not an emotion, a choice. But it's a choice that's always transformative in the one who chooses to love. The discussion doesn't end there, though. For now, Jesus will turn to them and ask them a question. He says, what do you think of the Messiah? Now remember, he's looking at this group of scholars, this very devout group of Pharisaic scholars, and he says, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? 
The answer they offer is a solidly traditional one. They said to him, the son of David. Then he comes back at them with a second question that to their ears must have sounded almost wildly unconventional. I don't know how carefully you were listening to the reading, but I suspect that at least for many of us, the back and forth of the little dialogue that was read aloud can sound a little bit foggy. He said to them, How is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? You got that, right? Clear as mud. When Matthew concludes that no one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions, it might be tempting for us to think, no kidding, they didn't dare to ask him any questions. They didn't know what he was talking about. Yet they did. They did have at least some clue. As soon as Jesus launched into his question, they'd have recognized that what he was doing was citing Scripture again. In this case, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now this is one of the Psalms that's attributed traditionally to King David, in which he envisions the Lord God speaking a word of promise to the longed-for priest king or Messiah. So the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord God said to this promised one, the one who would bring Israel to its fullness. Citing this psalm verse, Jesus then hits them with something of a riddle. He says, if David has called the promised Messiah his Lord, how can he also be his son? Put another way, how can David's son also be his master? Now, the riddle might strike us as a, as a little bit of technical word play, right? It's not one of the, the most moving pieces of Scripture usually. But that technical word play that we hear was something that the Pharisees would have really wrestled with. They would have heard it as being a particularly strong finishing point on this whole discourse. And maybe at some level... That was the case. He did finish with this definitive argument that, again, to us kind of sounds like, what? To them, wow. Yet Matthew also has an insight, a deeper insight here that he wants us to pay attention to. You see, as they listen to Jesus' questioning riddle, and it is a kind of a riddle, the Pharisees assume there must be an either-or answer. There must be an either-or answer. Yet from the very opening verse of his gospel, Matthew has avoided either-or and has held up both and. Matthew has openly identified Jesus as both Messiah and Son of David in the first verse of his gospel. And as his story unfolds, Matthew frequently calls Jesus the Lord. He's son of David, he's Messiah, and he's the Lord. He holds all of these titles together. 
So long as the Pharisees think of the Messiah only in terms of a Davidic style of conquering warrior king who's going to ride in and free Israel from Roman rule, this riddle will keep them quite stuck. But Matthew knows, and Matthew wants his readers to know, that the way through the riddle is to affirm the lordship of Messiah Jesus and to affirm it as a, a lordship defined by agopic, loving kindness, and active mercy. Not a military son of David, not that kind of Messiah, but an agopic, loving kindness defined sort of Lord. By a life lived in consistently choosing to embody love of God and love of neighbor. He does it in everything, every moment of his life. That's what Jesus is. The one who loves God and loves neighbor as himself. Seen through Matthew's eyes, the ones who can actually laugh at the riddle are those who can catch the delight of the divine joke. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that that was the defining act of God's gracious and merciful agopic love. Until the Pharisees can begin to see that, until we can begin to see that, the whole of this gospel remains a conundrum, an unsolvable riddle. But the moment you take the delight in this idea that God became human as David's son, as Messiah, as Lord, as one of us, and transforms the world from there through this thing called merciful loving kindness, agopic love, as soon as you get that, then you have to laugh your way into the riddle and into the great divine joke that is the life God has granted us. The Pharisees couldn't see it. Some of them would. This moment they couldn't see it. Can you? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.